John wrote, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes and our hands have touched, this we proclaimed. John was able to keep his eyes focused on Jesus. Peter put it this way. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Peter was able to keep his eyes fixed on Jesus. Jesus put it this way in John 17, 3. Now, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. It's Easter. It's Easter, and it's all about a resurrection. It's all about something that happened 2,000 years ago that changed everything. It changed the world. The resurrection is the reality of our lives. The resurrection is the responsibility of our lives. And the resurrection is the redemption of our lives. I'd like to talk to you about that today. In his book, What Americans Really Want Really, Dr. Frank Luntz put it this way in his chapter titled, What We Really Want From Religion. What do we really want from God? Fully 92% of Americans believe that God exists. But the answer to this question is hardly as universal. In fact, there may be as many answers to the question as there are Americans who believe in God. And it is because of this variety of different perspectives that simplifying what we really want from God to something neat and tidy is going to be very messy. In his book, Luntz talks about how Americans want more money, fewer worries, fewer hassles, less stress. You see, you want life to be perfect. You want life to be exciting. We all want life to be secure. We like control. Troy, the main character in August Wilson's Fences, he wanted to be in control. He wanted to be in so much control of his life that he even wanted to be in control of death. He said it this way, death ain't nothing. I done seen him, done wrestled with him. You can't tell me nothing about death. Death ain't nothing but a fastball on the outside corner. That's all death is to me, a fastball on the outside corner. We love control. And we want life to be perfect. We want it to be exciting. And we want it to be secure. But it's not. It's messy. It's very messy. And Jesus walks into our messy lives with a resurrection. But before that resurrection, he said some things that caused a whole lot of people to shake their heads and and wag their tongues a lot. Let's go to one of those scenes. Luke chapter 4. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. News was going far and wide about what he said and what he did and who he was. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. 
And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. They could not take their eyes off of him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Today, right now, is the fulfillment of what I just read. And they all knew what that meant. They knew that he was making himself out to be the Messiah. He was making himself out to be God coming into the world to do things that that nobody had ever done before, that nobody had ever seen before. And it stunned them. And some of them didn't want to believe him. Some of them grumbled about it. Others wondered about it. Others had doubts. But some began to believe. It caused a whole lot of people to shake their heads and wag their tongues a lot. You want life to be perfect. We all want life to be exciting and we want life to be secure. So how do you get that life? Let me tell you, Jesus walks into our lives with a resurrection and changes things from what we want to what he wants for us and with us. Because the resurrection is reality. And the resurrection is responsibility. And the resurrection is redemption. The resurrection is reality. Because we read these stories in scripture from eyewitnesses. John 20. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark... Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Notice how John has to put in that he was faster than Jesus. I beat him to the tomb because I'm the fastest of all the disciples. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. Do you know that in a church in Spain to this very day, they have what they believe is that cloth? And these linen pieces that they see here, that's what is reported to be the Shroud of Turin that mysteriously has captured the the image of a crucified man. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. He saw and believed. The tomb was empty. 
Jesus wasn't there. Nobody disputes in the annals of history, nobody disputes that the tomb wasn't empty. It was empty. The only conjecture is, why was it empty? Where was the body? Where did Jesus go? Is this something of a, of a ruse that the disciples are trying to pull on everyone? Is this something that, that was done by the Romans? They had put the body somewhere else to, to create chaos? Or was it that Jesus accomplished what he said he was going to accomplish through God's power and God's life? He came back. There was a resurrection that changes everything, changes the way we think about our lives today because the resurrection is a reality. I'm going to read you something, and I want you to guess where I'm reading this from. We were not made for death. The Almighty delivers his people. He unlocks the prison of darkness and shatters the power of death. This is the meaning of Easter. We were not made for death. Is that some ancient Christian text? Is that something that was written by the great Reverend Billy Graham? Where is that? Would you be surprised if I told you it was in this weekend's Wall Street Journal? That's where it is. It's in the weekend Wall Street Journal. The profound connection between Easter and Passover is the name of the article. Check it out. We were not made for death. Why does God... Allow that to be in the Wall Street Journal because he knows not as many people are reading the Bible today as they did a while back, 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, 100 years back. So he, he sneaks into our lives through places like the Wall Street Journal. Uh, a few weeks ago during March Madness, there was an article in the New York Times about Gonzaga and the title was, What's a Gonzaga? And, and it had a picture of St. Gonzaga and he was looking at a cross with Jesus on the cross. And once again, God said, I'm going to get my son on the cross right there in the New York Times because I'm not going away. I'm going to keep poking and making sure people know this story will never go away. If you go to the Lynn Haven Mall, you can see the, the, the wonderful movie, The Case for Christ. It's all about a man who was an atheist. He was a reporter for the Chicago Tribune. And he won awards uh, in journalism, and he was an atheist. He decided to, to disprove Jesus and the resurrection, and he could not do it. And all through the it's a Christian movie, but I love Christian movies where all through the movie, he's drinking beer. I mean, this guy is drinking beer after beer. He's going, man, i got to get this Jesus guy. i got to disprove this. Beer, beer. He comes home drunk. Fabulous Christian movie because it's real. It's his struggle. It's, it's his gut level motivation to disprove Jesus Christ, and he could not. And so God says, I'm going to send a movie. I'm going to put it in the Wall Street Journal. I'm going to keep Jesus on the cross in front of you in the New York Times, because the resurrection is a reality. In the true Jesus, David Limbaugh quotes Bishop Fulton Sheehan. Jesus was the only person who came into the world to die. Death was the goal and fulfillment of his life. Few of his words or actions are intelligible without reference to his cross. The story of every human life begins with birth and ends with death. In the person of Christ, however, it was his death that was first and his life that was last. Peter puts it this way in Acts 
chapter 10. Peter fairly exploded with his good news. It's God's own truth. Nothing could be plainer. God plays no favorites. It makes no difference who you are or where you're from. If you want God and are ready to do as he says, the door is open. You know the story of what happened. And we saw it, saw it all. Everything he did, where they killed him, hung him from a cross. But in three days, God had him up alive and out where he could be seen. We were the ones there to eat and drink with him after he came back from the dead. He commissioned us to announce this in public, to bear solemn witness that he is, in fact, the one whom God destined as judge of the living and the dead. But we're not alone in this. Our witness that he is the means to forgiveness of sins is backed up by the witness of all the prophets. In other words, there was prophecy after prophecy for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years so that they were expecting him. They knew he was coming, and yet when he arrived, many did not know him or understand him. Yet some believed, and he gave them the gift of eternal life. He gives it to everyone who believes. But maybe you still have doubts. Maybe you still have questions. Let me ask you to go to this website, risenjesus.com. My good friend, Mike Lacona, who was here last weekend, has put together a lot of answers to, to common questions and doubts about Jesus Christ right there. And so it would take hours and hours to go through that kind of material. On your own, go to risenjesus.com. If you have questions, you have doubts, or you just want to learn more about your faith, you'll find so many answers there because the resurrection is reality. The resurrection is responsibility. Let's go back to Luke chapter 4, verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. You know, when Jesus said that, I think he was not only talking about himself, but I think he was talking about us. Because he knew that when he was going to, to say, I will build my church, that he knew there would be a large group of men and women who would come together, who would have the desire in their heart to be a light in the world and to change people's lives in the world. He talked about feeding the hungry and, and clothing the naked and visiting the sick and in prison. And so I think that we are partners with him in this proclamation of good news to the poor. And that's why God put this on my heart. I know he put it on my heart because I've never done this ever on an Easter Sunday in the 24-year history of Spring Branch Community Church. I've never done this before on an Easter Sunday. But I'm going to invite you in to doing what Jesus says right now. Um, we, you saw some, some pictures of, of Big Water and what we did in, in West Africa a few years ago. Well, the people are still in so many ways desperate for water. Without water, they, they struggle so much. Uh, children are struggling and they get sick, they get parasites. It's hard to, to raise animals. It's hard to do the farming. Uh, and they are subsistence farming people. They grow it, they cook it on 
fires that they have to gather wood every day to make a fire outside, and there's a big pot, and that's where they cook outside of a mud hut with a thatched roof with, with mud floors. And, and they are in such struggle uh, with these things that when we come alongside them, it, it's, like, it's like the scripture says, we're a city set on a hill, we're a light in the world. And what we're trying to do is to take that well where we have, we have put in an underground piping system, the, the first on-demand, water on-demand system ever in the history of this small country in West Africa, Togo, never had water on demand before. And we've put in 22 fountains, we call them, so that you walk out of the door of your mud hut and there's water right there for you. Never happened before. Rather than having to walk miles down a road to get water, rather than having to, in this rainy season, dry, in the dry season, walk all the way to a river to get water, it's right there. So your life is, is better, it's healthier, it's more functional. And what we want to do is put a cap on, the, on top of this tower. There's a picture of the tower. On top of that tower, we want to put a cap that's going to extend the pipes, extend the water delivery system to many other villages so that thousands of people's lives will be changed. To do that, our Easter Sunday congregations, I'm asking to give a total of $15,000. And that's only about $10 or $20 per person that's come to an Easter service to do this project and, again, change people's lives in real time right now. Imagine being a mother with a, a sick kid and, and you don't know where the water is going to come from. Imagine you're trying to grow some corn and, and it's dry and you don't know where you're going to get the water for the corn so that you can have something to eat. These are desperate situations. I've been there. It's desperate. So as you go to the, to the big water uh, display outside in the lobby, as you take one of those envelopes home and think about it and pray about it, or as you buy one of those t-shirts, you're going to help get this done so that I can tell you in, in a week from now, in a couple weeks from now, we did it. We got them the water. We extended the pipes. More people's lives are being changed. And God put that on my heart to bring to you this Easter, that we would accomplish this together. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor because the resurrection brings with it a great responsibility to be the hands and the feet of Jesus Christ today in the world in which we live. In his book, The Furious Longing for God, Brendan Manning put it this way, the gospel is absurd and the life of Jesus is meaningless unless we believe that he lived, died, and rose again, but with one purpose in mind, to make brand new creation. Not to make people with better morals, but to create a community of men and women who would surrender to the mystery, who would live in ever greater fidelity to the omnipresent word of God, who would enter into the center of it all, the very heart and mystery of Christ, into the center of the flame that consumes, purifies, and sets everything aglow with peace, joy, boldness, and extravagant, furious love. This, my friend, is what it really means to be a Christian, to take this extravagant, furious love, to be a, a group of people with a furious love that changes the world. That's why the resurrection is reality. That's why the resurrection is responsibility. And finally, and most importantly, at the forefront, at the pinnacle, at the summit, the resurrection is redemption. It's redemption. The other day, the word redemption came up 
on Jeopardy. And I was under a lot of pressure then, you know, because I got to get this right. And I got it right, and I was so happy. Uh, it's a word that goes back to a Latin root, and, and I got it right, and somebody on Jeopardy got it right, and, and I was really excited about that. The other day, the word redeem was on the cover of Sports Illustrated. Check it out. With the North Carolina Tar Heels taking the national championship. Redeem team. North Carolina finishes the job one year later. They redeem themselves. Themselves. It's a very important word, and sometimes it, it peeks and, and pokes at us through, through the culture. We see pictures of Jesus in different places, in stained glass. We see him in, in the image of a cross, and he's coming off of a cross. He's coming off of a cross. Paul put it this way in Romans 10, 9. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. In the 2016 State of American Theology report, it was disconcerting to see that 77% of Americans agree on the fact that it takes some of your own effort to be saved, some of your own effort to be redeemed. And the New Testament doesn't allow for any of this. The New Testament only says with great clarity, the work of Christ on the cross, that's the finished work. He did it. He paid the price. He opens the door. He invites you in. He gives you your salvation as a gift. You were lost, but he found you. Lost. To be lost was so important in Jesus' mind and heart that in Luke 15, he told three stories of lostness. The first story was about a lost sheep. Remember that story? Man lost a sheep and he went everywhere. He left 99 sheep behind. He went everywhere to find that one sheep that he lost until he found in that finding of that one sheep, there was great joy. Then there's a story of the, the lost coin. This, this woman lost a coin, and, and she was just beside herself because she lost this coin. And she, she, like, looked everywhere. Did you ever lose something in your house? And you just had to, like, look everywhere and under things and under cushions and in closets, and you got a flashlight out, and, you, and then you finally found it. And there was, there was a sense of relief. It was lost. It's found. And then he told that third story, a story about a, a son. The son was lost, but the lostness was of his own doing. He told his father, hey, Pop, I'm out of here. Just give me the half of what you're going to give me when you die. Just give it to me now, and I'm hitting the road. And, and then he goes out, and he spends all the money, and, and he just loses everything. He finally comes to his senses. He has this this moment of insight, and then he says, I know I can go back to my father. I can go back. I can, I can be sorry. And so he goes back to his father, and his son that was lost is found. And so important to Jesus, this idea of lostness and foundness. I had a story happen to me just recently about lostness. Um, let me tell it to you. I was in, was in New York City. Gail and I like to go to New York City several times a year. Our daughter, Ashley, lives there. And so we like to visit 
her. She always has a new restaurant for us to try, and, and I love that. And, and we also love going to New York because we love Broadway shows. And so when we get to New York, one of the first things I do is, is I jump into my assignment. And my assignment is to go to Times Square and to stand in line at the half-price half ticket place for Broadway shows in Times Square and just wait it out. I always say hi to Elmo. And just wait it out, wait it out, however long it takes to get half-price tickets. That's my job. Sometimes the line stretches from Times Square to New Jersey. But it's my job. You know, sometimes I'm standing in the middle of the Lincoln Tunnel, hoping I'm going to get to the front of the line. And, and, then, and then Gail does her job. And her job is basically whatever she wants to do. And I don't, know, I don't know how I got this job. And then she got that job. It was somewhere, it was somewhere in, the, in the vows where it said for better, for worse. And worse was you're the guy that stands in line. So, so I, I get to the front of the line. Finally, I buy half-price tickets. Second row orchestra right in the center for a Bronx tale. This is going to be great. So I call Gail. I say, Gail, half price tickets, orchestra, second row, Bronx tale. She says, take a picture of the tickets and send it to me so I know exactly where I have to go. I said, good. So I'm, on the, I'm at the corner of 7th Avenue and 57th Street. That's where Carnegie Hall is. And so uh, it's a little windy. The wind's whipping down 7th Avenue. I'm a little cold. So I go inside the lobby of Carnegie Hall. I was surprised that it was open. Beautiful lobby. Beautiful. Marble everywhere. Vaulted ceilings. Just, just what you would expect it to look like. Majestic. And so uh, I, I find a, a good spot to put these tickets to take the picture. It's a little pedestal, kind of a column. I put the tickets right there to take the picture. And I take the picture. Boom. I text it to her, I get all my stuff, I go on down the street, and about an hour and a half later, two hours later, I'm at the theater, I'm waiting in line again, because that's my job, I wait from 8th Avenue all the way up to the theater with all these other people, walking. I get to the front of the theater, now I'm at, at the, on the steps, and I, and I said, my wife's not here yet, and they said, well, just stand right over there, sir. So I stand there, and I call her, she says, I'm almost there, I'm almost there. So I'm standing there waiting, and now it's just a couple minutes before we're supposed to go in, and I'm timing her arrival, and I go, I better get the tickets out. I have this zippered inner pocket where I keep everything safe in my jacket. I go to the zipper, entered pocket. The zipper is down, and the tickets are gone. I reach deeper into the pocket. No tickets anywhere, and I can't figure it out, and I don't know what to do, but then I realize what I have to do. I have to bite the bullet. I have to go to the box office. I have to buy two full-price orchestra center tickets to the show because I can't have her show up, and I have no tickets. Every husband in this room knows what I'm talking about. I can't say, honey, I lost the tickets. We're just going to go talk to Elmo in down in Times Square for, for a little bit. It's not going to work. So I, I go, oh, the agony of it. How much are these tickets now going to cost me? So I, I go over to the box office. I, I, I feel and I look like Job. I'm like bent over, sort of twisted. And I get up to the guy at the box office and I go, sir, a tragedy has happened. This guy's from New York. He doesn't care. <laughs> he's, he's got his own problems, right? So tragedy has happened. I bought tickets half price in Times Square. Somehow I was walking around. They fell out of my pocket. I lost the tickets, and I'm just sort of like throwing myself at his mercy there. And he says to me, where were you walking around? 
which I thought, that's a, that's a pretty good sign. Sounds almost like he cares. So where were you walking around? And I, I thought about it, and it just came to me, Carnegie Hall. And he looks at me with this wry smile, and he reaches up, he pulls out two tickets, and he hands them to me, and they're my tickets. Someone out of eight million people in New York, someone found my tickets. Because I just left, I took the picture, I walked away, I left them there. You know? <laughs> Somebody of eight million people in New York found the tickets, said, oops, there's a husband who's going to be in a lot of trouble in a couple hours. And they felt that, and they walked 11 blocks to bring them and said, when this guy gets here for these tickets, here they are. You can give them back to him. And the joy that was in the foundness was just overwhelming. It was overwhelming. And I turned around, and Gail was there. I said, hey, let's go to the show. <laughs> I didn't tell her. Why get in trouble if you don't have to? You get enough trouble anyway. Just... Don't, like, don't walk into it if you don't have to. Um, so Jesus knew that we were lost, but he wanted to, to find us and bring us home so that we could live with him forever. And what I'd like you to, to do is, is listen to these words, John 6:40. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. All you have to do is look at him and believe him, and he finds you, and he brings you home. Would you think about that for a moment, and would you look at your decision card? Because maybe for the first time in your life, you need to do that today. I had a first day in my life in 1971, where I had to say, I'm going to decide to ask you into my life. And maybe this day is your first day. Or maybe your life has been a little wobbly, your life's been a little off track recently, and you go, you know, i got to get back to staying focused, focused on what God wants for my life, focused on my relationship with Jesus Christ. And you want to do a rededication move this morning. Or maybe you're saying, I want to get baptized at the Oceanfront Baptism this summer. Or maybe you just want to sign up to get information from the church or sign up to connect in some way to a Christian community that is changing the world by doing projects like Big Water or whatever. But I think if you would write a note to God today and just let him know that you're here and that you're looking at him, that would really mean a lot to him. That would mean a lot to Jesus. You can drop those cards as you leave today or bring them up front afterwards. Somebody will be here if you'd like to mark this time with a prayer, somebody will come to pray for you, with you this morning. You see, at the end, you want life to be perfect. You want life to be exciting. And you want life to be secure. And the only way you get that is by knowing that the resurrection is real, that the resurrection is responsibility, that the resurrection is redemption. It only happens when with the resurrection and the true Jesus walking into your life that you are changed forever. Dear Heavenly Father, we are 
so humbled to be able to have a moment like this with you. What your son did 2,000 years ago changed everything. So Father, take us into these final moments of our Easter celebration and call us, call us with your heart that our hearts would respond to you and give our lives to you now. In the name of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ of the resurrection, amen.